Amidst the grounds of the Miskatonic University stands a grim archive. Within lies a collection of the darkest secrets known to mankind. But visitor beware, for what horrors lie within their pages. Can you resist their maddening call, or will you succumb to the tales from the Orna Library? Tonight's story, Alone Against the Frost, by Chaosium Incorporated. Alone Against the Frost is yet another solo adventure created by Chaosium Incorporated for the Call of Cthulhu role-playing game. You, the listener, take on the role of Dr. Lawrence Nadelman, a rising star in the field of cultural anthropology and a professor at the Miskatonic University. You are leading an expedition into the wild and unexplored region of the North Hanina Range in Canada. What terrors does the wilderness hold for you and your companions, and can you survive long enough to find out its secrets? Put on your warm coats and prepare for yet another chilling adventure with Alone Against the Frost. You are Dr. Lawrence C. Nadelman. You have long been fascinated by the prehistory of North America, particularly the big woods of the north. The Canadian wilderness remains as unexplored as the Amazon basin, and hunters, trappers, and gold seekers tell hair-raising stories of the peoples in the area. Of course, they also tell tales of terrifying demons and other exotic fantasies. The time is right to bring a rigorous academic perspective to the big woods. The truth hidden there is doubtless more fascinating than any traveler's yarn. For over a year you have petitioned your department to finance a modest summer exploratory trip into Canada's Northwest Territories. Now at last your funding has been approved and you make your preparations to leave at the end of the spring semester. Many of your graduate students are eager to go, but you can only take three. With you are Bernard Epstein, Sylvia Davidson, and Norman Faulkner. You have chosen to explore the valley of the North Hanina. In the local dialect, Hanina means the river of magic power. The yarn spinners have worked overtime on the legends of the North Hanina. It is said to be haunted by invisible presences and bloodthirsty headhunters. A part of the valley where a party of prospectors was found beheaded is still known as the Headsman's Glen. Your small expedition takes the train into north-central Canada and then boards a chartered launch to Great Slave Lake and down to Mackenzie to Fort MacDonald, where an outpost of the Royal Canadian Mounted Police represents the sole power of civilization amidst many thousands of square miles of mountains, lakes, taiga, and swamp. Fort MacDonald is a trading post for trappers and natives. The best route into the valley of the North Hanina is upstream by canoe. Following the west branch of the Mackenzie to the mouth of the tributary you seek. A single bark canoe of excellent make has been reserved for you, as well as all your basic gear that your summer trip requires. Officials tell you that guides are reluctant to venture into the North Hanina, 
The local people have always shunned the region, and most of the white men who dared to trespass upon the river of magic power never returned. Still, you locate a tough professional guide named Charlie Foxtail. She narrows her eyes upon hearing your destination, but is persuaded by the high wages you are offering. Finally, all is ready to go. After a few days on the west branch of the Mackenzie, the stuffy corridors of the Miskatonic University seem very far away. Sun stipples the water from the glare of the midday to the gentle burn of sunset. Caribou gaze at you from the shore. Ahead, a heron drags an unfortunate stickleback from the shadows. It would feel like a vacation were it not for the relentless demand of the paddle. Each day makes the students more adept at keeping time with you and Charlie. Your supply of gasoline is limited, so you run the outboard motor as seldom as possible. Sun and wind grant Bernard the outdoor complexion he desires. You locate the tributary one evening, just as the light begins to fail. Next day, you launch into the North Hanina. The Rama Mountains loom in the distance through a heat haze. At this latitude, the summer nights are so short that darkness gives the waterways no time to cool. Norman wipes sweat from the back of his head. The North Hanina is a rougher river than the West Branch. Its floodplain is obstructed by sandbars, hills of driftwood, shingle islands, and forests of dead trees rooted in the mud. The current points all of them downstream, like arrows warning you to turn back. Sylvia turns to your guide. Charlie, do your people live in this area? Charlie grunts and watches the water. For a moment, it seems she will not answer. Then she looks at Sylvia. At one time. Now, on the outcasts. We will avoid them. Sylvia frowns. Why are they... But Charlie raises a hand. From ahead, slowly building, you hear the roar of rushing water. This is the place of the splitting water. She says. Here, the river is alive. Each day it makes itself new. The expedition spends the day working through a baffling network of waterways. Sometimes you are forced to back down impassable channels to find an easier way. Sometimes you blunder across the heads of powerful chutes and are swept along with them. At certain points, your party has to wade in waist-deep water, inching the craft along by hand. You pass labyrinths of wooded aisles, fast water and drift. Finally, you select a peaceful backwater in which to moor and make camp for the night. You take first watch that night while the others sleep after an exhausting day. The brief darkness is disturbed by the splash of beavers in the stream, the trilling of insects, and the hoot of a great gray owl. As you listen, you hear a peculiar scurrying in the undergrowth. Just beyond the glow of the campfire, something is moving. The sound stops near the spot where your graduate assistant, Bernard Epstein, is snoring faintly. You pick up a weapon and pad through the silence. A heavy sky blocks the moon and stars, and it is only by a sudden flaring of the fire that you see the intruders. Tiny figures walking upright. You have only an instant to decide what to do. You rush forward, spooking the intruders. Startled, the apparitions vanish into the brush. You yell to wake your comrades. They spring from their bedrolls, rifles in hand. 
What is it, Doc? Gasps Epstein. You explain that you saw strange little beings standing over him as he slept. Charlie gasps. We cannot stay here now. We must leave the North Hanina. You ask her to explain, but she only shakes her head. Charlie does not seem like a woman who is easily frightened. You manage to calm down the distraught guide. You speak the truth, Professor. She says. My people tell these stories to our children, but I am rational, like you. After a few moments, she draws closer and lowers her voice. The tracks are like some I saw when I was a girl. The night before, a girl of our village had vanished. A hint of fear returns to her eyes. They say when someone is taken by the little ones, the puck wudgies, they do not come back. Or worse, they do come back, but they are not the same. Although skeptical, you listen to Charlie's stories with patience. Talking it out has helped your guide, and she is fit to go on. Despite this strange encounter, you and your party agree to press deeper into the region. At dawn, you set off again. The day turns into a scorcher. Rocks in the streams are hot to the touch. There is beauty under the shimmering heat, too. The wet sands by the water's edge are hidden under a vibrating carpet of blue, a host of small azure butterflies basking in the warmth. Pausing a moment from your canoeing, you scan the shores for any sign of life. You catch a flash of something standing by the river shore, half hidden by a bushy juniper. Before you can adjust your binoculars, the stranger is out of sight. When you turn the canoe towards shore, Charlie grabs your arm. Professor, my people avoid this valley. It is under a curse. Do not chase the devils who inhabit it. It is not the first time you have heard such superstition from a guide. But there is an urgency to Charlie's words that unsettles you. Regardless of Charlie's warning, your curiosity gets the better of you and you steer toward the shore, heading for where the movement was. Pushing aside the juniper bush, you see a grisly sight. A man in a checkered coat is sprawled under the brush. Blood spills from his mouth. He looks like he is at the point of death. As you kneel beside the dying man, his hand shoots up and grips your jacket collar. Beware. He rasps. Little Indians. Gray men. Up there. They got Jake. Oh, God. His fingers loosen and his arm drops to the ground. He has stopped breathing. Shaken, you leave the dead man behind and climb back into the canoe, resuming your course. Paddling is a familiar rhythm now, and you permit periods of rest using the outboard motor. Your determined group proceeds mile after mile toward your primary goal, Headsman's Glen. The valley is crowded by steep hills, small mountains, and rough stands of jack pines, black spruces, and balsam firs. Following Charlie's advice, your party sets up a semi-permanent camp, giving access to fish and game as well as some refuge should the local peoples prove hostile. In the days that follow, your party makes periodic excursions, seeking evidence of human inhabitants. It begins to look like you will be disappointed. 
Following another day of fruitless exploration along the floor of the valley, your party fixes a hearty supper of stone-baked biscuits, jerky, and beans. Gnats and mosquitoes swarm close, but the smoke from your fire drives the worst of the pests away. While you eat, you notice Charlie has withdrawn from the group. You attempt to include her by asking if she has any campfire songs or hair-raising stories. It is bad luck to speak of such things. She grunts. The woods do not like to be mocked. She gets to her feet and scans the perimeter of the camp, sniffing the air. You raise your eyebrow. Moose. She says before you can frame your question. It is nothing. It is time we went to bed. You draw in a deep breath, scenting nothing but the food, the smoke, and the fresh odor of the river. Nonetheless, Charlie's manner has affected your party's mood, and they are ready to call it today. Who's on first watch tonight? You ask. Your group exchanges glances before Bernard raises his hand. I guess I'll go first tonight, Doc. Get some rest, everyone. Leaving Bernard Epstein on watch, your party turns in, each to their own small tent. You throw your eider-down roll over a mat of branches and cover it with a sheet. Yawning, you take a last look outside. The camp is bedded down and everything is in its place. That night, you dream of walking naked across a snowfield. Your shivering becomes more pronounced with every step you take. When you wake in your sleeping roll, you realize the temperature, at least, is no dream. Frigid branches crack outside, tossed by frosty gusts. But you hear something else. A breathy, chilling voice on the wind. It whispers two clear syllables, like ancient wilderness-given speech. You tell yourself it is only one of your companions calling the graduate student. But it comes again, and you know it is no earthly sound. You rise and throw on your jacket and seize your weapons. As you lift the tent flap, you see Bernard at the camp's edge, staring into the woods. He gives an unintelligible shout and darts into the blackness of the encroaching trees. You quickly rouse Charlie, Norman, and Sylvia. As they yawn and blink, you tell them what happened and demand their help. No! Charlie grabs you. We must not seek the boy. He has heard the call of the Great Windwalker. He is lost to you. We must flee. Charlie's fevered eyes bore into yours. Bernard's disappearance has awakened a powerful terror within her. How can you get through to your superstitious guide? I'm sorry, Charlie. He's my student. He's my responsibility. And as his professor, I have to try. You respond. Okay, professor. Charlie glares at you. We who live all our lives in this land can never know its way so well as those from other countries. We will search for the boy. You and the others fall in behind your sullen hunting guide. Charlie follows Bernard's route for about twenty minutes. His tracks are soon joined by those of some large animal, or what you suppose is an animal. It has hooves of a kind. Large, round crescents showing an irregular edge, but no split. The farther your party goes, the more agitated Charlie becomes. 
Eventually, the strides made by your student and the creature extend to an unbelievable length and then vanish completely. In the receding dust of snow, it seems that Bernard's final prints alter in shape. At the end, there are nothing but round impressions, identical to those of the animal. Charlie cries, no longer able to contain her welling fear. You explain that the melting snow has distorted and erased the tracks, and that this has nothing to do with the Windwalker legend. Charlie looks at you, eyes wide. With considerable difficulty, you quell Charlie's fear and return to camp. Now you must decide the future of your expedition. We have to try and find him. I refuse to continue until we can find him. You announce resolutely. For three days, you and the students spend every daylight hour looking for Bernard. Charlie guards the camp, watching the sky with fearful eyes. On the fourth day, you have to accept that your grad student may be gone for good. To your surprise, Charlie takes responsibility for the tragedy. She approaches you to apologize. I'm... I'm sorry, Professor. Charlie mutters, her dark eyes downcast. Perhaps I'm a fool. But it is hard to be wiser than the wisest of my people. With that difficulty resolved, you take the first watch, choosing a small rise between the tents as your sentry post. The night turns unusually cold, causing your teeth to chatter, but ending the attacks of the large local mosquitoes. The wind picks up, and suddenly, a sound like you've never heard before drifts out of the darkness. It is like a moan, an animal cry, like all the distant animals of the big woods calling out at once. You fidget with the polished stock of the rifle. The sound is echoed by one from Charlie's little lean-to. Her gasp of fear is followed by a low sobbing. You get up, descending to the guide's tent, and listen. She seems to be having a nightmare, and you wonder whether you should shake her out of it. Just then, you catch a new scent on the wafting breeze. It makes you think of moss. A heavy, oppressive blanket of moss. The odor is followed by a whining call. Charlie. Charlie. A cold flake melts on your nose. You touch it. Snow in the summer? Impossible, even in the Northwest Territories. Suddenly a dark shape bolts past you at a crouch. Charlie! She is barefoot, running at an amazing clip. In an instant, she will be swallowed by the trees. You watch helplessly as your guide disappears behind the trees. Something deep inside you screams not to follow. At last, all is quiet. You know it is foolish to try to navigate the big woods after dark. So you sit down on a log and wait out the last hour of the short, subotic night. By the time you get back to camp, Norman and Sylvia are frantic. What the hell is going on? Norman demands. You explain as best you can what happened, but even to your ears the story sounds confused. 
Norman and Sylvia stare at you doubtfully. You shake your head and swallow a mouthful of steaming coffee. You and the two other students travel over trackless woods on short rations. From day to day, the air cools as the short summer declines into the rugged subarctic autumn. To avoid a riverside marsh, you weave through a forest of mature larch. The uneven terrain makes you wish that Charlie was still with your party. Despite her absence, however, your party makes progress through the large forest. Along the way, you hear movement just ahead, and you quickly silence your companions, motioning for them to hide. Your party heeds the warning and ducks behind a large fallen tree. Several men emerge from the trees to the west. You recognize native hunters, probably of the Tsutina. However, their rifles are antique, and their gear less sophisticated than the Tsutina you've met before. Charlie said something about an outcast group. Could these be the hunters she mentioned? Suddenly, a bee darts up and bounces off the face of Norman, who instinctively swats at it, making a noise that the passing warriors cannot fail to notice. Your stealthy approach has failed. You urge Norman and Sylvia to make no aggressive moves. The hunters press in around you and take the rifle from your hand and the knife from your belt. The students get the same treatment. You tell the hunters you mean them no harm, keeping your voice even. One of the hunters speaks in his tribal tongue. Joya! You have enough of his language to interpret it as silence, or some variation. Your captors take the three of you down to the spot where you first sighted them. When you arrive there, you find you are not the only prisoners of this particular band. A girl, perhaps of the same community, rests behind a tree trunk, bound hand and foot. The leader of the hunters fires gruff instructions to his men. His words are too rapid for your slim knowledge of the dialect, but the subsequent actions are clear. The girl is quickly freed from her bonds. Rubbing her wrists to restore the circulation, she is wordlessly accepted back into the clan's ranks. The hunters seem most interested in the young Sylvia Davidson. They seize and bind her. You bark a curse and try to throw off those holding you. One slams the back of his fist into your face. As you stagger, blood begins to run from your nose. Beside you, Norman struggles and meets the same reaction. The others place Sylvia up against a tree and tie her like some sort of offering to the forest. She cries out, but you can do nothing. The hunters shove you and Norman out of the clearing as they gather their gear and leave the spot. You and Norman are pushed ahead of them down the trail as Sylvia's sobs fade with the distance. Once you are well away from the spot, the hunters seem to lose interest in you. They tie both of you up and vanish into the twilight forest. Surprisingly, they leave your weapons nearby. You and Norman struggle with your rawhide bindings. Can you get back to Sylvia before who knows what befalls her in the darkness? It takes a long time to get free of your bindings. When you finally do, full night is upon the forest, and the wolves are baying a threatening chorus. Norman finds a natural shelter in a rock formation, and you make the agonized decision to wait for first light. With the dawn, you can follow your trail back to the place where you left Sylvia. The rawhide cords are broken, 
snapped by a strength far greater than hers. The tracks that lead away from the tree are considerably larger than yours. You sense Norman's reluctance, but he grips his rifle and falls into step behind you. Together you do your best to follow the trail of Sylvia's abductor. The trail occasionally fades over rock and scree, or disappears entirely when the abductor wades through sloughs and ponds. Yet your tracking skill is up to every obstacle. The manner of creature that you follow fills you with wonder. Its feet are huge. From heel to toe, the track measures fifteen inches. You remember legends of a gigantic ape-man hunting the Northland. Whatever else the giant may be, it is a tireless marcher. Twice you have to sleep along the trail. Only an occasional rag of clothing or a scratched word in the sand keeps you from losing hope. At long last, you and Norman come to a stream-cut canyon enclosed by the Ram Mountains. The tracks parallel the creek and seem very fresh. You follow them eagerly, but are disappointed to come to a fissure on the rock wall, through which the stream spurts and the tracks vanish. It will be hard to wade safely through the fast water to enter the hidden valley beyond the cliffside. But if you hope to rescue Sylvia, you must try. Determined to rescue Sylvia from her abductor, you and Norman draw on reserves of additional strength to force your way through the torrent. Afterward, weary from your ordeal, you crawl from the stream and rest upon the black sand around it. When you catch your breath, you notice that the atmosphere is more like Florida than Canada. The flora is completely strange. Gone now are the bear berries, the firs, the subarctic shrubs. Tales come back to you. Yarns of an enclave warmed by hot springs and the Chinook winds. Could the legends be true? But for now, Sylvia's rescue is paramount. By wading along a shallow stream, the creature nearly shakes you off its trail, but you are too experienced to be foiled by such a trick. The pursuit takes you and Norman up into high ground. The prints become fresher as you climb. You silently guide Norman through the prehistoric landscape, when suddenly you hear the bushes crackle and pull him down into a crouch. Something, something big, is moving through the undergrowth. It comes into view. Somehow both you and Norman remain silent at the sight of the huge, ape-like figure that lumbers out of the bushes. You have heard of this creature, the Sasquatch and you had doubted its existence before this trip. It stands over seven feet tall and is completely covered by a short coat of dark brown hair, flecked with white, or maybe flakes of mud. Heavily built, particularly in the legs, the Sasquatch's limbs are proportionally longer and thicker than a human's. It displays a sagittal crest like a male gorilla, such a feature you know from your anthropological studies virtually disqualifies it as a close relative of man. The male, as you now think of it, moves with a peculiar shuffle, letting his great arms dangle. Threads of drool hang from his lips. When it passes on, you suggest to Norman that you follow the Sasquatch. He swallows, but finally nods in agreement. The lay of the land suits continued surveillance. The Sasquatch travels directly to a primitive camp, where more Sasquatches of both sexes and all ages mill about. 
The campsite is filthy. You see no fire, no huts, no sign of tools. Suddenly, you pick out a small figure in khaki. A girl walking around with nervous steps between towering sasquatches. Sylvia! You return to Norman and explain what you have found. You both agree to wait until nightfall. That night, the two of you sneak into the encampment, fully aware that the Sasquatches may be nocturnal and have sharper senses than you. The camp seems relatively empty of the creatures. Perhaps the bulk of them are foraging. You creep to the spot where you last saw Sylvia and whisper her name. Sylvia? Professor? The voice is unmistakably Sylvia's. You calm her with a whisper. She hugs you, overcome. She seems in good shape, considering. You explain that you must sneak away from the camp at once. The three of you manage to sneak away without any incident, and run deeper into the woods until you are certain that they will not find you. You, Norman, and Sylvia can finally breathe sighs of relief. Only now, when the first brilliant rays of the dawning sun break over the Ram Mountains, are you able to appreciate the wonders of the Lost Valley. You quickly confirm your discovery of a readout of unprecedented prehistoric survival. Animal tracks attributable to no modern beast of the north abound in the sand and bubbly mud. However, your speciality is anthropology. Your paleontological studies have been limited. Plants of every shape and size grow all around you, but you fail to recognize any as unquestionably prehistoric. You recall how long it took to secure funding for this expedition. Some physical proof might be required to mount another. You decide to seek out unusual animal life. An animal specimen would be a more convincing piece of evidence for the existence of the prehistoric valley than plants. You decide to try and trap something. While you and your students stalk the bushy fringes of a large meadow, the woods reverberate with the wavering call of hunting beasts. The howls chill something primitive in you, but you are armed, and at such moments, reputations may be made. Get ready, you warn Sylvia and Norman. Your party takes position behind a bush heavy with orchid-like blossoms and waits for the yelping beasts. Moments later, they burst into view, Incredible canines which resemble reconstructed museum specimens of dire wolves. You hear a sudden intake of breath from both students. Have you put them in mortal danger? It is too late to run. Each of you fires off into the pack. The air is filled with the sound of yelps, screams, and gunfire. Eventually, you manage to drive off the pack. You emerge with your students to survey the slaughter. One dire wolf lies dead at your feet. Although heavy, a dire wolf's head would be convincing proof of your discoveries. Sylvia prepares it for transport back to civilization. By the time you near the watery ledge that is the exit from this place, the adrenaline rush of combat has faded to a deep weariness, and you have to drag your feet to keep them in motion. Perhaps that is why you do not sense that the wolf has stalked you all this way. Leading the party, you have stepped past its hiding place when it launches, snarling as it springs. Norman tumbles backwards, but the huge brute knocks Sylvia off her feet and tears out her neck. You and Norman recover quickly and leap to attack. 
Together you dispatch the wolf. But it is too late for Sylvia. You bury her within sight of the valley entrance. Guilt-ridden over the loss of Sylvia and your own inability to save her, you and Norman edge along the submerged ledge that leads to the outside world. The journey before you and Norman promises to be long and hard. The threatening chorus of howls in the pine forest has made Norman jumpy. You decide to halt at a cave for the night and take advantage of its protection against predators. The two of you build a fire in the entrance and settle down inside your ragged blankets. As you drift towards sleep, you become conscious of something breathing at the back of the cave. Something huge. You alert Norman. Then you hear it stir. Its odor rises to press upon you. A sickening stench that you can hardly bear. You fire at the source of the breathing. The muzzle flash paints the walls of the cave. With a scream, the immense creature staggers and collapses upon the flowstone at the cave's rear. You raise a torch to illuminate the body on the floor of the cave. It is a man-ape of incredible musculature. Your previous experiences confirm that this is yet another Sasquatch. Now you have physical evidence here to prove your discovery. In the morning, you decide to try and follow the river to find your way out. While trying to keep parallel to the North Hanina, you and Norman are forced to cross through hot springs and ravines. Around a bend, you hear a bizarre humming sound. What you see is not what you expect. Neither of you cry out. Perhaps you are too astonished to do so. A short distance ahead, a band of bizarre creatures toil, using machines held in delicate claws to suck up mineral deposits precipitated on the rocks. These entities resemble pink, five-foot-high crustaceans infested with fungoid growths. They surely could not have originated on this planet. Each of you with a rifle starts firing at the alien creatures. One of them grabs a twisted silvery device and points it at you. A beam strikes the rock you crouch behind. Ice crystals form before your eyes, coating the surface of the rock. Fragments shatter off with a loud crack. You hit that alien in its midriff, and it falls. Finally, the fight is over. Still dazed, you go out and check the bodies and find them to be pink, fungoid crustaceans of great size. From the way they fought, they must have been intelligent indeed. Your scientific excitement rises. What specimens they will make. Unfortunately, a strange deterioration sets into the bodies. By midday, there is nothing left of them but slime. It is time to decide the course of your expedition. Fort MacDonald lies within your reach. Of course, you must return. But there is time for one last side trip, in hopes of learning a little more about the North Hanina Valley. The game trails are empty. The berries, so abundant earlier, have withered away and dropped off the branches. The threat of starvation is real. The two of you walk for many days, hungry. Professor, I don't know how much longer I can keep going like this. I need to eat something if we're going to keep on this pace. You nod your head in agreement, but continue to push on. One morning you wake to find Norman gone. You search for the entire day but fail to turn up any single trace of him. In the end, you have to admit that you 
are alone. Despondent of the prospect of a trek through the wildest stretch of the Northwest Territories, you ram your way through the bush with bitter violence. Thunder rumbles in the western mountains like the echo of distant drums. The peaks fade into a lowering canopy of clouds. You wade a small river and cross a pine ridge. The scenery blurs together as you go. In the days that follow, you try to fish with your bare hands, eat whatever you can kill, and take the berries that grow along the way. You are undergoing a test that would daunt a seasoned frontiersman. As you wander along the bank of the river, a thin drizzle chills you. You notice a cave opening and duck into it for shelter. You stop short one pace in. The stench coming out of the cave is overpowering. You sense heavy breathing in the darkness. Suddenly, the inhabitants step into the gray light. More Sasquatches. If you could only communicate, but you do not need advanced anthropological training to read their sudden hostility to this intruder in their den. You spin and run. Your sudden burst of speed catches the Sasquatches by surprise. You are faster than them, but your short legs will tire before theirs. Eventually, your pursuers catch up to you and seize you into the air with massive, gorilla-like arms. The Sasquatches toss you from one to another. Suddenly, you understand that they are not angry, but that they are playing with you. Finally, they let you fall, exhausted, to the ground. At last, the Sasquatches become restless and cease to pay attention to you. You remain motionless as the band shuffles off. You are alone. Truly alone. You head toward the shore, trying to find your way using the river. The shore seems devoid of berries, game, or anything else to eat. Your concentration and reflexes noticeably impaired. You are reduced to wandering the shoals of the riverside, attempting to spearfish with a sharpened pole. Around one bend, however, you find an abandoned canoe. You climb aboard the canoe and set out downriver. At your next rest spot, fish and game abound. A good meal does wonders to restore you. At last, you come to the treacherous segment of river that Charlie Foxtail called the place of splitting water. Whirlpools take charge of the canoe and pull it across a snag, tearing the craft open and throwing you into the boil. You heave yourself upon the bank and lie there for a moment, exhausted. It is once again time to decide the course of your expedition. Despite the risks and your weakened condition, you diverge from the direct route to Fort MacDonald, determined to explore as much of the valley as possible before you quit. As you wander the banks of the North Hanina alone, you hear the crackle of walkers in the woods ahead. At first your heart leaps at finding other people, but then you remember the cruel lessons of the big woods. They may not be friendly, you hide and wait for them. A moment later, a party of men appears. Undersized men with unnaturally grey skin. One holds the severed head of a woodsman. After the physical and mental ordeals of last week, you are in terrible shape. Your tension causes an involuntary spasm and your leg jerks on the dry leaves. The murderous men call out shrilly and point your way. Once again, you must run for it. The shrieking war party pursues you. You are already tired. Your only hope lies in getting sufficiently far ahead to hide. You hear a whirring sound, 
Something bangs into your shins and yanks your feet from beneath you. A bolas. You hit the ground face first. The little men seize you and bind you and carry you away. The diminutive people carry you out of the glen to a lonely spot. Here a hound-tooth rock stands under the gnarled evergreens, marked with carvings and painted symbols. They tie you to the rock and begin to circle you, their bone adornments clicking in unwelcome rhythm. Several yell over what seems to be an old fire pit. A glowing vapor curls from it, swirling into a tight, dazzling mass. As the hunters cavort, they launch ecstatic shouts to the heavens. You glance up. The mists have parted, and with an odd clarity, you see the Hyades of the head of Taurus. Cold wind massages your face. As you shiver, you get the impression that the sky, a terrifying void just a moment ago, is now rushing down upon you. Inexplicably, they cut your bonds and flee. You fall to your knees beneath the stone. The raw wind whispers in your ears. With the sound comes a compulsion to run towards its source, to somehow touch the wintry sky. You desperately want to reach, to merge with whatever is up there. In the summons is an offer. Existence wilder than life. Death that conquers death. Change that transcends immortality. When you come to, you are lying on a hard bed of pebbles beside a small, deeply incised stream. Suddenly your head is filled with visions of the terrors you have encountered. You sit bolt upright, scanning the dense skeletal stands of aspens and paper birch on either side of the ravine. As far as you can tell, you are alone and in no immediate danger. You check your weapons and find nothing but your hunting knife, still in its sheath. You decide to stay where you are until morning, in the faint hope that someone will find you. By the time the mists are burned off by the morning sun, you give up that hope. Once again, you are on your own. Finally, you manage to pass the place of splitting water with no particular difficulty and reach the calmer waterways of the west branch. The foraging is ample now and you recover strength as you draw near Fort MacDonald. After so many days on the river and nights in the woods, it feels strange to sit in a stifling room and answer questions about your conduct. When your report of your party's misfortunes is analyzed by the Canadian authorities, they absolve you of any wrongdoing or neglect. Now you must decide what to announce as the primary result of your explorations in the valley of the North Hanina. The other discoveries can wait. The existence of the Lost Valley and its prehistoric survivals will shake the scientific world and make your name, if your accounts are taken seriously. The physical evidence you produce convinces all but your most biased opponents. The university brings the topic under serious discussion Journalists from the radio and newspapers clamor to interview you. Satisfied that they can depend on your observation, the Miskatonic University sends out a new expedition under Ivan Kurtov. Public engagements make it necessary for you to rendezvous with the expedition at Fort MacDonald, instead of accompanying it from Arkham. When you arrive, braced for a return to the North Hanina, 
you find that the ambitious, overzealous Kurtov has started without you. The Kurtov expedition vanishes without a trace. You return home, alone, and argue for a second effort. However, the Great Depression makes such a project out of the question. Your books and articles about the lost land attract a cult following, but the existence of Nadelman's lost land is not proven in your lifetime. The Nadelman expedition is over. The end. We sincerely thank you for listening to our strange story tonight, and we hope it gave you chills and thrills alike. Voice cast is as follows. Matthew Bennett as Bernard Epstein, Colin DeYoung as Dr. Needleman, Benjamin Van Rokel as Norman Faulkner, Hazel Theodore as Sylvia Davidson, Brittany Shesnock as Charlie Foxtail, and Stephen Anderson providing additional voices. Join us next time for the start of our longest series yet, A Long Way From Home. Follow us on Facebook at Tales from the Orn Library or on Twitter at Orn Library Pod. Additionally, you can view our website at talesfromtheornlibrary.com where you can see all the handouts used in the show thus far. And remember, the library is always open. <laughs>